Well, we're in Acts chapter 20. You, have, you should have a Bible somewhere near you if you didn't bring your own. We would like every one of you to bring your own Bibles, get used to your own Bibles, familiar with them. Um, and so if you don't own one, there's that one that is located right there in front of you. Uh, but we are in Acts chapter 20. We're going to pick up today in verse 1. And we are going to consider today uh, what are the last, and we're going to start uh, considering today, what are kind of the last events of Paul's third missionary journey. His, this third missionary journey, it began back in chapter 18 toward the end of that chapter. And you may recall that Paul head out, headed out from his home church which was Antioch of Syria, and he, he went north, he went into the regions of Phrygia, he went into the region of Galatia, and visited with some of the old churches he had been to before, some of those that he actually uh, started in many ways through his evangelistic ministry. And from there, he went westward to that city of Ephesus, and we, we spent some time considering it. It was a place that he had visited briefly, it was a place he really wanted to spend more time but wasn't able to, but now on this journey he is. And he'll go there and he'll spend uh, about three years in that location. Longest time he spent in any particular city, um, second, the second lowest was Corinth, about 18 months. So he had almost twice as long he was there in the city of Ephesus. And as we saw, he poured himself out in the lives of the people. He worked a full-time job while he was there. Uh, and in the middle of the day, he would teach the people, and it, it talks about him going from house to house. He would have meals with people, and he would pour himself out into the lives of the individuals of that community. And God was blessing his work. God was blessing the word of God as it was going forth. It says in verse 20 of chapter 19, it says, And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. God was changing lives, and he was doing through doing so through the steady intake of the Word of God. Now, after the three years, or uh, toward the end of that period of three years, God began to stir Paul again. And I, I th I've experienced something like this. I know a lot of you as well. We might call it a, a godly discontentment, where you're not, you're not just grumbling, you're not just complaining, you're not just looking for the next best thing, but God begins to do a stirring work, and you're very, very satisfied here but he begins to move, and you can't quite put your finger on it. And what is God doing? And where does he want me to go next? But you're sensing he wants you to go somewhere next. And God began to do that. He brought this godly discontentment, if you will, to the Apostle Paul. And Paul began to realize, you know what? God's moving me elsewhere. And we'll read that today. Let's pick up verse 20, or excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 20. It says, now after the uproar ceased... Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. And when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Verse 4, Sopater the Berean, the son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius, and Derby, and Timothy, and, uh, of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from, Phil from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven 
days, as it says. Now, if you were with us last week, uh, if you weren't, just go back and read chapter 19 to get the context. But if you were with us last week, we learned all about what's mentioned in verse 1, where it says, after the uproar ceased, we learned all about that uproar, that riot, where 25,000 people gathered in the city theater, the amphitheater, the outside structure that was there, and they began to chant for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, Artemis being sort of the representative god or the patron goddess of that particular community in that uh, Greek and Roman culture. And there they're gathering, yelling, two hours, great is Artemis, great is Artemis, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And you remember their objection was to the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Paul was teaching that there's only one true God. People were leaving Artemis, and they were worshiping and serving that one true God. And there was great concern in that community, particularly among the merchants who sold the little trinkets and little statues of Artemis and made a lot of money off of those. And so Paul, in his ministry, is having an effect on that community, and it led to an uproar. It led to a riot in that city. Here, the next thing we read about is his decision to depart from that city. And it's possible, we don't know for certain, but it's possible that he departs so soon after that riot because of the riot. It's possible there's a sense of, you know what, I've done what I needed to do. There's enough Christians here. They can continue the work that I've been doing, and it's no longer safe for me to remain here. So that's a possibility. It could be that it had something to do with him as I said earlier, just developing that sense that God is moving me on. One way or the other, the Apostle Paul knew that the Lord was leading him to depart the region, the region of Asia, again, Ephesus being the largest city of that region. And as you see there in verse 1, to leave Asia, go across that body of water, the Aegean Sea, and make his way to Macedonia. So they departed from Macedonia. But notice verse 1 also says, but first they gathered together the disciples of Ephesus. So Paul's just not going to, in the middle of the night, take off. Sometimes in my past, I've been like nervous of departures. I don't want to cry. They're going to cry. It's weird. I'll just leave. <laughs> and then like I'll call them, hey, I left, um, kind of thing. Well, that's pretty childish. Uh, and so Paul's not like that. And so Paul here he says, look, I'm going to gather the disciples together, the church together. I'll give them one final goodbye. He had developed great bonds of affection, three years of ministering to these people. How many meals did he enjoy at people's homes and talk with them about the things of the Lord? How many times at church uh, or their gathering did he present the message to them and saw people responding, the relationships that he was able to develop? So he's not just going to leave. He's going to talk with them. He's going to minister to them. Uh, encourage them, and then he's going to leave there, uh, and he's going to depart to Macedonia, that region again, uh, across that body of water. In Macedonia, cities like Berea, you remember we saw them, Acts 17, cities like Thessalonica, city like, cities like Philippi. We know that he went back into those cities, met with the churches that were there, and encouraged them. Also, some other cities in Macedonia, you may have heard their names, Amphipolis, Apollonia, Neapolis, plenty of cities that are in those regions, and Paul making his way, and he's visiting there. Two weeks ago, we saw part of his goal was, do you remember, to receive a collection that he was going to bring to the church in Jerusalem who was going through a famine. 
So we spent some time two weeks ago talking about that, and Paul sent some disciples ahead of him. You take the collection so I don't have to, you know, have that weird, like, situation where people think I'm pressuring them. So we spent some time, we looked at that. But I imagine also, in addition to that, it's not the only reason Paul's going there. Paul's going to go there, and he's going to meet with those churches. He's going to talk to the people. He's going to disciple them. He's going to teach them. He's going to hear what's going on and how he can help create solutions, perhaps, to some of the difficulties that they're experiencing. He, whatever is needed, he's going to give them. He's their pastor. He's their apostle, the apostle that's serving them. If you look at verse 2, it points to the encouraging aspect of his ministry. Look, it says, now when he had gone through those regions and he had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Now, we're, we're probably all familiar with that there's a country in the world today that's called Greece. Uh, this isn't exactly the same locale. It's in that region. Today's Greece is larger than what this is referencing, but yet much smaller than the ancient Greek empire that a lot of people think of as well. We have a little map here. Let's throw it up here. See that little red area there? If you look to the top of the red area, that's Macedonia. That's where he came. You look below the red area, that's Achaia. I've learned this week it's not Acacia. I've been saying that many times. It's Achaia. So you have Macedonia to the north, Achaia to the south. And that little area in between there is what is being referenced to here as Greece. One of the key cities of that region is Corinth. And we learn uh, toward the end of the book of Romans that Paul wrote that book from Corinth. And historians, commentators think it's during this period of time that we're about to dig into a little bit more that he wrote the book of Romans. What a wonderful book. Have you read it? It's a good one. You should read it. It's been called the most definitive book of Christian doctrine that has ever been written, the book of Romans. I'd encourage you, if you haven't read it, take some time to do so and to study it. When we finish Acts, we're going to go back to the Minor Prophets for a few months, and then we're going to come back to the New Testament and do the book of Romans together. So that should be great fun. And it's suspected that he wrote it here uh, in verse 2 when it says uh, that he went to Greece. Verse 3 says, There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Now, the main reason probably that he spent there in uh, Greece for three months is because it was the winter, and it was too rough. It, w it wouldn't be safe for him to travel um, by sea during that three-month period of time. Another delay we're introduced to here is that Paul discovers that there was a plot that was made against him. Now, Paul, one of the reasons, we'll see it in a moment, one of the reasons he's trying to get to, to Israel and to Jerusalem is to celebrate the feast. And so a lot of Jews would have been going to Jerusalem, sailing across the Mediterranean 800 miles or so to get to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. Many of those Jews, you recall, didn't like the Apostle Paul. He was kind of encroaching in on their business, so to speak. And there were many times many of those Jews wanted to kill the Apostle Paul or assault the Apostle Paul in some way. Here, Paul learns that there is a plot made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, so he decides to walk back to Macedonia. It seems, it doesn't say exactly, but it seems, hey, when we get on the ship, it's going to be crowded. That Paul, he's probably going to be somewhere alone. Let's get him. Let's kill him. Let's throw him overboard. And Paul, I don't know if that's what happened, but something like that. And Paul gets word of it, 
And he says, I think I'll take another ship. And so he walks all the way back to Macedonia, where he get that's a, also the coastline there, is port cities. He can get another ship from Macedonia that he'll eventually take to Jerusalem. And so this delay that we have in his trip, he misses the Passover feast, as we'll see in a moment. He's really trying to get there now seven weeks later for the Feast of Pentecost, which would take place uh, 50 days later. And so Paul gets word. He changes his plans. He goes back to Macedonia. Look, he has a group of guys with him. Uh, Sopater the Berean, the son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. Of the Thessalonians, these two guys, Aristarchus, the, the ark in the middle there, government official. This is probably the son of a high-ranking official, so someone from the upper uh, echelons of society. The name Secundus, uh, you can kind of see the word. What word do you see in there? Second, uh, probably a slave that was known as slave number two. And so you got a guy from the high level of society, a government official, the son of a government official, and you got a slave. And yet these are brothers in the Lord that are serving together and they're going about and doing what they're doing to assist the Apostle Paul. We also learn about a guy named Gaius. We see his name often in the New Testament, Timothy. We have some books that were written to him, and we see his name. And then some folks from Asia, where Ephesus was located, Tychicus and Trophimus. And they, they all set sail from there. Again, we know their names. Notice in verse 5, uh, Luke joins the group. Seven men plus it'll be Paul and now Luke as well because, and we, we see that, verse 5, it says, they went on ahead and were waiting for us. He'll say we at another place as well. Remember, he, Luke is the author of the book of Acts and he um, shifts. I always get it wrong. Kyle, help me. First person and third person. I don't know what that means right now. Uh, but he shifts from they to we. Anybody know which one is first? We? Okay, so he shifts from those two. I didn't do very well in English. Somehow, I failed English in 10th grade. I, I, I feel like I know the language, but uh, not enough. Um, so he, uh, Luke is back with them. Hasn't been with them for two or three chapters now, and Luke is back with them. And it seems that Paul takes some time just with Luke. He catches up with Luke. Um, they spend a little bit of extra time, the two of them, there in the city of Philipp, uh, Philippi. It says that, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. That's connected with Passover. And in five days, we came to Troas, where we stayed for seven days. We have a map of that. I don't know how important these maps are to you, but for me, it gives us a sense. It's not just words on a page, but it gives us an idea of what we're talking about. So they come from Macedonia, they go back over to the region of Asia, they, right on that coast there, they hit that city of Troas. And it says in the verse that they stayed there seven days. Now during that seven days, uh, we have the, this next event that is recorded for us. Uh, again, the, the missionary journey is pretty much ending, it's just a matter of getting back home. Uh, but we have this event in between, and it'll be verses 7 to 12. Let's read them together. It says, now on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now there were many lamps in the upper room where we had gathered, were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. 
And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story, and he was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and they were not a little comforted. Well, if you've ever preached or taught a message and you had somebody fall asleep in your service, don't feel so bad. They fell asleep in the Apostle Paul's services as well. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it happens. Your flesh is willing. I want to be there with you, Pastor. Uh, or your spirit is willing, but your flesh can be weak from time to time. Um, I'm not sure if I've ever fallen. I've fallen asleep during prayer meetings. Um, I don't know if I've ever fell asleep in a service, but it happens. And it happened here. This guy, Eutychus, he goes over to the windowsill, sits there probably to get some cool air, and he falls out the window, and it says he's taken up as dead. Notice a couple things before we dig into that. Notice uh, the, the day that the church gathers. It says here, on the first day of the week, when we gathered together. And the tradition of the early church was to do so. Again, remember, the early church began primarily as Jewish folks. Their Sabbath was a Saturday. And yet the early church from the earliest pages of the book of Acts, in commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus, began to gather on Sundays. It's not the only time that they gathered together, but they would gather together on a Sunday. They would break bread. They would receive the teaching. They would fellowship with one another. They'd pray with one another. And here we have another example of that. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart. So again, we have that, the breaking of the bread. We have the communion. We have the idea of his teaching them. And he did it for a long time, as we see. It says he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, lest you get too worried, uh, they probably didn't gather at 10 a.m. on a Sunday, and he went all the way to midnight. More likely, Sunday wasn't a day off. Uh, in that particular culture at all. Uh, and so more likely after a work day, 7 p.m. or something, they gather together and Paul taught them. A long time, four or five hours, you folks would have a heart attack if I went on for four or five hours. I'm not going to that church anymore uh, or whatever. But he taught them a long time uh, and they came to hear from him. Their service likely would have involved uh, a dinner first. They called it there an agape feast. Uh, a little bit later, it's called a love feast, where they would gather together, they would eat, they'd enjoy one another, much like we have here in the past with our potluck services that we have. And then when everything was sort of cleaned up, they would get ready and Paul would teach them and he would explain them. So they've been there. They had a nice meal. The belly's full. They've worked all day. The room's probably crowded. It's probably getting hot in there. And this kid, Eutychus, is tired. I remember when I was younger, uh, I would go to my wife's parents' house to see my wife. I love her parents, too. Um, but it was more to see her, my girlfriend at the time. And I'd been working all day on the farm, and I was exhausted. But I couldn't leave until 11.50, because I had to be home by 12. But I wanted to spend every minute that I could at that house. And I'd be sleeping on the couch. And why don't you go home? No, I can't. Whatever. And you try, but you just can't stay up any longer. And so Eutychus here, he's trying, he worked a long day, he just can't stay up any longer. But I love what he does. He goes over to the window. He probably shouldn't have sat on the windowsill. He should have stood near the window. But it seems like he's trying to just get some cool air, 
we throw water on our face or something. He just wants to stay awake. He wants to be able to hear what Paul is trying to say. Where The, the word there in verse 9 where it says he, uh, and being overcome by sleep, that word overcome means it's a word that is used for a person that has lost a battle. He's trying as hard as he can to stay awake, and he just can't, and so he uh, falls asleep. Paul had a lot to say. Verse 7 tells us this is going to be the last day that he's with them. And he has a lot to say. And so he's been preaching for four or five hours here. And our friend Eutychus is trying, but he can't. And so he's overcome by sleep. And he dozes off and he falls out the window. Notice it says it's a thir the third story. And he lands and it, it says that he is taken up uh, as dead. Now, there's a little ambiguity in the writing. Um, so my version, it says, taken up as dead. Um, maybe a little more literal would be taken as dead. Uh, and so commentators have differed. Like, did this guy actually die? And Paul went down and sort of went over top of him and was used by God to raise him back to life. That's the traditional understanding. That's my understanding. But there's enough ambiguity in the writing uh, that everyone thought that he was dead. And Paul went over to him, and you even notice in his wordings, he says, don't be alarmed, his life is still in him. That as Paul gets right up next to him, he's like, no, this guy's not dead, he's knocked out here, but um, we'll get him back, or whatever. I think more this idea of the resurrection, uh, that the man was raised back to life, but, but either way, had he been seriously injured or actually died, that would have really put a damper on this meeting, don't you think? Uh, yeah, remember that last night Paul was here and Eutychus died? Like, it, it just changed the entire uh, aspect of this meeting. And so, praise the Lord, the guy is able to go back up uh, to the room. It's midnight now. Look what they do. I love these people. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread, they eat again, we see here. All right, they love their meals. Uh, and then he conversed with them a long while until break, daybreak. So they have a meal, let's say that takes another hour or so, I don't know, uh, and then he talks with them again for another five hours. Now there is a different word used here. So verses uh, seven and nine, it used the words that he talked with them. Here it says that he conversed with them. It's a different word. Um, Luke is very careful with the words that he uses, both in the gospel that he wrote and in the book of Acts. And so he's almost certainly trying to communicate there was a little bit of a difference with this second meeting that they had here. This seems more of like a dialogue. Uh, well, that's what the word is meant to imply, a dialogue, that they're fellowshipping with one another, answering questions that they have. Things are coming up, and they're just going down the path of where that conversation leads them. But he does this, as it says here, all the way until morning. So this becomes like an 11-hour church service. Some of you here, after, when I'm five minutes over, you give me the look. I just want to say, these folks are willing to go 11 hours. I won't take 11 hours of your time, but if I could have three or four extra minutes from time to time, I'd be grateful. Um, but what are these believers doing? They're doing exactly what the church in chapter 2 was doing. You remember Acts chapter 2, 42? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to the prayers. That was 25 years earlier in our book here. 
but they're doing the exact same thing that the early church was doing. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, specifically Paul's. They're praying with one another. They're dialoguing. They're fellowshipping with one another. It said on multiple occasions that they're breaking bread with one another. They're doing that which God raised up the body of believers, the church, to do, and God was blessing it. Just like he blessed that church there in Acts chapter 2, and just like he blesses any church that commits itself primarily to these four things, the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowshipping with one another, and praying for one another. God blesses that. That's what we're trying to do here as a body of believers. Look at verse 12. It goes on. And they took the youth alive, and they were not a little comforted. I love the way the Bible words that sometimes, which means they were very comforted. And, and no kidding. Uh, he didn't die. He's alive. Verse 13 goes on. But going ahead to the ship, we, that's Luke and Paul, set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. Uh, for so he had arranged, intending himself, I'm sorry, I re reword this. Luke set sail, Paul walked, uh, to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at uh, Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. A lot of cities. Um, that green city that is up there, if you look at that map, that green city, that's Troas. Okay, that's where that other experience that we just looked at uh, occurred. The red one now is Assos. They're, they're not very far apart from one another. Uh, because of how they're located and the, the geography of the land, both of those happen to be port cities. And so a ship would have sailed out of Assos, a ship would have sailed out of Troas. And so the Apostle Paul says here, look, why don't you guys take the ship? I want to walk. It's 15 miles can't imagine. Uh, but he says, I'm, I'm going to walk. Never told why. I wonder if Paul is thinking, you know, I just need some time to be by myself. I just need some time to think. I need some time to pray. And so you guys go ahead. You all get on the ship. I'll meet you down there. And so Luke and Secundus and Aristarchus and all of those other folks that were mentioned in that previous verse, they're on the boat. Paul's going to walk and then he's going to meet them and he's going to pick up uh, with them in that next city. Again, we're not told why, but I think to think and pray. Verse 14 says, And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And then it's going to go on in the next verse, and it's going to name a whole bunch of cities. It's going to talk about um, Caius and Semus and Miletus and the like. And so I'm going to just throw that up there as well, just to give you a sense of where these places are located. And so uh, the map there, I don't know if you're memorizing this, but Troas is in green, Assos up there in red, Mytilene in orange, uh, Chios in yellow, Samos in blue, and Miletus, the last of them, is sort of in purple there. Red, orange, yellow, blue, indigo, violet, kind of in that particular order that you have there. What they're doing is they're stopping at every single port. So you remember when Paul didn't take that boat earlier because they were going to kill him on that boat? That was sort of the direct. That was going to go right to Judea. You get on it, and you head there. This one is more of the, the local train that stops at every one of the sites here, and it takes a little bit longer, and probably picking up passengers all along the way 
until they finally get down to Miletus, which will be the city that they depart to go all the way down uh, to Judah, uh, or Judea, I should say. One of the cities not mentioned in that verse, 14 and 15, those verses, is a, a popular city, the city of Ephesus. Paul doesn't stop there. We see that in verse 16, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus. So somehow, Paul, maybe it's a private charter of some sort, he has the authority to say, let's not go here, let's go there. And the ship captain listens to him, and they decide to sail past Ephesus and just get to the next city. Now, that, geez, Paul, I thought we were your buddies. I thought we were pals. You don't want to be near us. I decided to sail past Ephesus so I wouldn't have to be with those people again. You know, if you read it that way, that doesn't sound very pastoral on the Apostle Paul. I love you people so much I don't want to see you ever again. You know, that doesn't sound very loving here. But what we're given is the reason why is because he knows if he goes there, he's not leaving there in a half hour or an hour. It's not a quick port visit there. But he's once more going to be spending time with these folks and so rather than this being read, um, I don't want to see you, it's I can't see you right now, um, is this idea here. And so he moves on from there. Why? Because he wants to get to Jerusalem. It says this in verse 16. He was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. He had already missed the Feast of Passover for various reasons, didn't get out in time to make the trip there in the winter waters, but he really wants to get there for the Feast of Pentecost seven weeks later. Now, the text doesn't say this, but I think it's reasonable to conclude at least part of the reason that Paul and the others are stopping at each of these cities. Again, Paul could say, let's not go to Ephesus, which means he could have said, let's not go to Miletus, let's not go to Mytilene, let's not go to Chios as well. I think part of the reason could possibly be that he wants to connect with the Christians in those communities as well. He wants to talk with them as well. He wants to give them some final departing words as well, as he's going to do in Ephesus. Notice what it says here in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And so as he hit all those other cities, I think it's somewhat reasonable to conclude that he gathered the elders in those cities met with them, gave them some instruction, really wanted to do that with the elders of Ephesus, but knew that he couldn't go into Ephesus and just be there for a short time, so he calls the elders to come to him. And if that is how things went down, that the, then the message that he shared with the elders in Ephesus is likely the message that he shared with the elders in all of those other cities as well. And if, and there's a lot of ifs here today, if the reason he chose to walk from Choa from uh, Troas to Assos was to think and was to pray, then I also think it's reasonable to conclude this is what he was thinking and praying about. This is going to be the last time I see these people. What do I want to say to them? What do I want to invest into them one final time? What do I want them to know now that they're going to be the ones that are in charge of this region? And I'm not going to be available to answer their questions and those particular things. Again, a lot of that is conjecture, but I believe it's reasonable uh, conjecture. Who is that guy? Stuart Briscoe. Where's the old people? You know Stuart Briscoe? Old people love Stuart. Uh, he was a great Bible teacher for those of us that are older uh, a long time ago. But he used to uh, talk about heavenly imagination. That sometimes the scripture isn't clear, but you know you can kind of think it through a little bit and wonder. 
and his wife, Jill Briscoe, who was a, a teacher herself, she would say, uh, I think it's okay to peek around the corner a little bit, you know, use your imagination. And he would say to her, yeah, it's okay to do that. Just don't go wandering down the street uh, to her. And so I, I hope I didn't wander down the street. I hope I just looked around the corner a little bit, as Jill has suggested. Well, uh, our friend Paul, uh, one final conversation with these leaders. Verse 22 is going to say that. Notice it says, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. A little later he's going to say, um, knowing that I will, I will not see their faces again. Paul, somehow the Holy Spirit communicated to Paul, this is it. You're not going to see these guys anymore. And so Paul, recognizing the, the seriousness of that reality, realizes, you know, I really need to gather with these folks and let them know a few things that I, after all this time, either I've never told them or I've told them, but I, I really need to make sure they know that. I need to remind them of these things. And we have those, uh, what he said to them in verses 18 to 35, which we'll read in a minute. We're fortunate, as we study uh, the book of Acts, we have three sermons, uh, probably not word for word, but three portions of sermons that Paul shared that Luke jotted down. We have in Acts chapter 13 where he preached in Antioch, Poseidon, you may recall. We have in Acts chapter 14 uh, in the city of Lystra. That's the city where they wanted to worship Paul as a god, him and Barnabas as gods. And Paul's like, what's going on? Whoa, what is going on here? And he says, man, can, and he, he explained to them the truth of the gospel. Uh, and then in Acts chapter 17, remember that one at the Areopagus, uh, the city of Athens, Morris Hill, and he, he began and he preached there. Their ser those sermons are recorded in, in, in length. We have a good idea of what Paul said in those places. The interesting thing about those three is they're all evangelistic messages. And so if you're really interested in evangelizing other people you care about or preparing an evangelistic message, look at those chapters because that's what they are. That's how Paul reached into the lives of people and explained the gospel to them. This sermon, we'll call it that, that Paul is going to preach and that Luke has recorded for us is the only one we have where Paul is addressing believers. I'm a believer. I want to read this. I want to learn from this. You're a believer. This is a, really a message that you can really apply to your life, not something that you can learn to bring to somebody else, but something you can learn that you can apply to yourself. And again, it's the only uh, passage that we have recorded of the Apostle Paul's teaching specifically written with believers uh, in mind. And so let's read it. It'll start in verse 17 once more. It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit of God, not knowing what is going to happen to me there, except 
that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of, of any value nor as precious to myself, if only that I might finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, and you yourself know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus himself, who said, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Longest recorded uh, message to a body of believers. And there's, there's a whole bunch of things that we can learn. So um, we're actually going to spend probably a couple of weeks in this little sermon here or this message that he shared. Uh, because there's a whole bunch of things I think that we can learn and that we can apply to our own lives. There's lessons that we can learn from the example of Paul. Paul will reference himself as an example, the implication being you guys are now the leaders. This is how you need to live amongst the people that you are serving. And so there are lessons about how we can serve those that are entrusted into our care. There's lessons for pastors and leaders, spiritual leaders of others, as to how they are to lead others. We'll spend some time with that. There's lessons for congregants, those there in the congregation that we can apply to our lives to know what it is that we should be expecting of those that are our pastors and our leaders. In addition to that, we have some lessons for what we can expect to encounter in a body of believers, what we can expect to encounter in a church. And so here, for the first time in Acts, really, we're introduced to the concept of elders or overseers, as it's used in one place, and what is their responsibility, and what should that look like in the church. We learn how such men are selected for that role. Paul mentions that here, and we'll take notice of that when we dive into it. We learn uh, some of the expectations for those that serve in the role. So we can learn about Paul. We can see his example. We can learn about the local church and uh, the governing body of that local church, the elders. And then finally, as members of a congregation, we are us, we are given insight into as Paul would say in the book of 2 Timothy, this reality that perilous times will come and that we can anticipate 
that perilous times will come. And what will the, the perilous times look like? Well, fierce wolves will enter in. And what do fierce wolves do? They seek to devour. And so we'll spend some time considering that as well. So Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 35, is pretty rich material. And it's going to take us quite a bit of time to kind of make our way through there. But, and we'll do it next time we're together. Some of you are getting worried. Oh, no, the 11-hour thing that he mentioned. He's going to do it. Uh, so we'll, we'll do that later on. But as we bring our time to, to a close here, uh, what I want to do is I want to encourage you, during this next week, take some time, read through this passage again, what I just read. Just read it again and think about it. And then, shortly thereafter, go to what are called the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles are the books of First and Second Timothy and the book of Titus. They were book, books that the Apostle Paul wrote to those two men, two of them to Timothy, one of them to this fellow Titus, who were serving as pastors of the little communities that they were in, and they were direction that he was giving them. What's Paul doing here with these people from Ephesus? He's giving direction to these elders, these pastors, these overseers, these leaders. And so Paul's not going to say one thing to one person and something else to another. And so the things that he writes in great detail in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are the types of things that he's saying to these guys. And so I think it broadens our understanding of the message that Paul wanted to share. So I think it would be really good for all of us. Are you with me? to take some time over this next week. Now, lest you think I can't read three books of the Bible uh, in a week. Look, man, I got things I got to do. I'll tell you this. There are a total of 13 chapters in those three books. 13 total chapters. 245 total verses in those books. And I'm asking you over the next seven days to read them. So what's that, 22 verses a day or something like that? Can we do it? We can do it. Are we going to do it? Yeah, we'll see, you know, how the week goes. I, I know that's what you're thinking. But I want to encourage you. I think it'll be really good for us. So let's take some time doing that. Read through Acts, the rest of Acts there, 20, that we just read. Read through those books. But this is where I'm going to close. These are Paul's, these are going to be Paul's final words for his dear friends. Those that he had spent three years with. These, again, are going to be his final words. Again, look at 25. I'll never see your faces again. Now, certainly, we live in a very different day and age from that of the Apostle Paul. Paul's about to sail 800 miles away, and he knows there's going to be difficulties. He knows there's going to be problems, afflictions, prison, all that kind of stuff. In our day, even if there weren't those things, in our day, I could be in California. I could be in Kathmandu. I have some friends in Kathmandu. I can see them on the video. Hey, you're getting a little grayer. I can watch them age. You put on a little weight. Wow, you lost weight. You look fantastic. And I can watch them grow there. I can continue a relationship with them. I can write even if it's just letters or emails to them and stay engaged in their life. Not the case back then. And Paul knows this is the last time that I am going to see these folks. So our goodbyes aren't tip the typical goodbyes that the Apostle Paul had. I think, yeah. I think a good, a better comparison for our day, if any of you have had uh, the opportunity, uh, maybe that's not the right word, but where you are with somebody on their deathbed, 
and you had the opportunity to come alongside of them and, and put a chair next to them and, and sit and maybe hold their hand, especially when they, they still have the ability to listen and to communicate and to talk and, and all of that. And if you ever had that situation, you know that things change very quickly. And it's no longer, did you hear the Phillies signed that new guy? How about that weather today? Hey, I got a new car. I'd love for you to see it. It's no longer those conversations. And whereas those are fun and there's a place for them, when you're sitting with somebody on their deathbed, everything changes. When my mom was dying, she, um, one of the things my mom liked to do is always have the scoop. And so she would get so excited, did you hear? No. Well, the neighbor sold their house. Oh, how about that? And she would love to have the scoop. And so, of course, I'm her son. I wanted to beat her. <laughs> and I wanted to have the scoop. And so every time I would see her, I would, I would come ready with the scoop of what I was going to share. And usually it's meaningless stuff, you know, about silly things that don't really mean anything. But it became a habit in my conversations with my mom. And uh, my mom was dying for about a month um, where she wasn't with it, so to speak, like uh, able to interact. And then one day she woke up and she was totally able to engage and talk with people and all that stuff. And it was, it was a gift. I don't know how that happens, why that happens, but it was a gift and it was an opportunity for us to go and sit in there with her. And so everybody left and I went in and I sat down with my mom and I went right back to some of the old habits. I, I wanted to scoop her and my mom stopped me. Not she wasn't mean or anything like that, but she stopped me and basically she's like, I don't want to talk about that silly stuff. She didn't say that, she was very nice. Um, but I don't want to talk about that silly stuff. And we had a real good serious conversation about things that matter, eternal type things. That's what Paul is doing in this letter. So you need to, you need to read this letter with that sort of a, a picture in mind. These are the things they needed to know before he left, and they, he never saw them again. So please read First and Second Timothy and Titus in preparation for our time together. And next time we come together, we're going to spend some time considering uh, the Apostle Paul and the example of his life. And we'll also take a look at, at the responsibility of these elders, what Paul was instructing them. Sound fair? I'll see you next week at 10. Fantastic. Let's pray together. And so, Father, uh, you know that we live in a world uh, that distracts us with bells and whistles and lights flashing and things that get our attention. And those things are shiny and glittery and uh, they, they do, Lord, distract us from the things that really matter so often. And so, Lord, even just over and above the things that we considered today and the things that we learned. Lord, I pray that as a result of gathering here in this room or watching online, one of the results of our having gathered together this morning would just be a fresh impression on our hearts to set our minds on the things that are eternal. 
not the things that are passing away, the things that aren't going to even matter tomorrow, but those things that are eternal. Lord, we thank you that you're good. We thank you that you're sovereign. We thank you that you're over all things. Lord, we thank you that you know our great need and you've made a way. We thank you that you so love the world that you would send your own son to pay our debt to you so that we might be able to have access into the holy presence of God. We thank you that you've left us here on this earth. You didn't just take us to heaven when we came to know the Lord, but you left us here as your ambassadors that we might go forth into all the world and tell others. So bless us, Lord, as we do that today, as we go forth. Give us opportunities to tell others. In Jesus' name, amen.